we come this morning, we have been following Jesus around Palestine and his life and his ministry through the book of John. And as you know the Gospels, if you are familiar with them, you would, you, you would know that they're highly condensed stories. The book of John, for instance, is 21 chapters, I think it is, and I think chapters 12 to the end represent the last week of Jesus' life. Just imagine how long the book would be if there were 12 or 13 chapters for every week of Jesus' life. So you know then how condensed John 1 to 11 is. So John 1 to 11, Jesus, John is, is selectively giving us the flow of his ministry and selectively giving us the content of his teaching. And what we find is that in, in John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast and he has some conflict with the Pharisees. In chapter 6, he's back in Galilee ministering and teaching there. And that's where we get that great dialogue on uh, the bread of life. And in John chapter 7, he's back in Jerusalem for another feast. Now these feasts are spread out over time. And, but in John 7, he has returned to Jerusalem. And we saw that last time or the last couple of times that he went up privately and not publicly because he had come into some trouble. In John 5, when he was in Jerusalem, he had, he had stirred the pot and, and caused some trouble and they were, they were out to get him. And so when he comes to the feast this year, he comes uh, a little more tactfully as he slides into town. But as he comes to town, and we're in John chapter 7, he's, he's continuing this dialogue that he's had with the Jewish leadership. He's been having an ongoing dialogue with the the powers that be, and in John 5, he started this dialogue, and he had some, some run-ins, and in John 7, he picks it up, and he continues this dialogue. And as he has this dialogue with the leadership, the crowd is listening in. So many times he's addressing the leaders in particular, but the whole crowd is around hearing this. So turn then, if you will, to John seven nineteen to 24, and then I'm going to skip over and read verses 37 to 39. Hear then the word of God. Has Moses not given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them and he said, I did one deed. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, from Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning, we sit at your feet, we open our hearts and our minds to your word, 
We also open our hearts and our minds to the flow of your Spirit. We pray that what Jesus offers here in this text today would flow in our lives every day. That we might be full of your Spirit and the life that is ours in Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is having this dialogue with the authority. He is, he is come to blows with them over the leadership's inability to see that one greater than Moses has come. They are fixed on Moses. And they can't see the one greater than Moses has come. And so in verse 19, he understands what's going on with the leadership. And he says that Moses has given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. So why are you trying to kill me? Why are you out to kill me? And when he says this, there are Pharisees and Sadducees and the leadership and the leading council in the crowd. And he's speaking to them. But the general crowd doesn't know what the leadership's plans are. The leadership is planning to kill Jesus, but the crowd doesn't know that. It's not public knowledge. And so when Jesus says this, the crowd responds and says, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus, you're paranoid. You must have some kind of evil spirit. There must be some disturbance in your soul. What are you talking about? But there is, in fact, a plot afoot. We see down in verse 30. We didn't read that, but you see in verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers out to arrest him. In verse 45, we see that that there was a division. No, in verse 45, we see that the officers came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they want to know, why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you arrest him? And the officers respond, have you, have you listened to this guy? No one has ever spoken like this man. You know, we, you know, we didn't think it was right. You know, have you heard this guy? And we're told in verse 30 when it says they're seeking to arrest him that his hour has not yet come. And so Jesus miraculously navigates these dangerous waters in Jerusalem and lives to teach another day. But he's dealing with these guys and they claim to be disciples of Moses. And what happens is that they are playing Moses against Messiah. They're playing Moses against Jesus. Jesus comes and tries to tell them the truth. He comes and brings a messianic message. He comes to bring the messianic fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament taught and hoped and prophesied. And he comes with this messianic message and they play Moses against him. Right? They're playing Moses against Messiah. This dialogue started, as I said, back in chapter 5. If you have your bulletin, the first point in the outline. If you find it on there, under chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said to them, If you believed Moses, which you claim to do, you're so into Moses, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote of me. He was writing about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, because Moses is pointing to me. Moses is talking about me. We see it in John chapter 1 when Philip and Nathaniel, Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, and this is his, his message. We found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus. Right? So even the disciples from the very beginning, they understand. We found the one about whom Moses wrote. Moses backed Jesus. 
not the Jewish leadership. But they can't see it. The Jews are giving lip service to this waiting for the Messiah, but the reality is they have made the law their Messiah. They've made Moses their Messiah. And they are so trusting in the law that has come to them through Moses that they can't, they can't get a fix on Jesus. They can't see him for who he is. They can't understand that the fulfillment stands before them. They've made Moses an end in himself. And they forget that Moses and the law was not the first word. And he wasn't supposed to be the last word. Right? Abraham, the promise preceded the law. Moses, Abraham preceded Moses. And the word to Abraham was, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the promise precedes the law and it was meant to be that in which our hope was always fixed. This, this faith that leads to righteousness. So John chapter 1 verse 17 coming out of the gate is John sets up the whole story of Christ. He says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come to us through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is trying to show them Right? Your, your religion has lost sight of the living God. Right? Your religion has, has fixated down. And you've lost sight of what God is doing. You've lost sight of His salvation. You've lost sight of, of His purpose through all of redemptive history of which the law was a part. And their focus has become on their own obedience. And then their own righteousness, it flows, their sense of righteousness, it flows out of their sense of their obedience. And so their own glory and their self of se- sense of self-satisfaction that comes out of their obedience and their sense of righteousness. And all of this is rooted in the law of Moses. And so Jesus rocks their world. If you are these guys, and Jesus says in verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you, none of you, none of you keep it. They revered the law of Moses. They had mapped it out. Right? They mapped it out. They they studied it and they took it and they made a list of rules. And then, they, and then they took the rules and they made rules under the rules so that they would make sure that they didn't get near to breaking that rule. And they, and they mapped it all out and they had their lists and they had the, their lists of rules. And they were keeping them meticulously following their little map of rules that they had made. And their whole religion then was this rule keeping, pursuing their own salvation methodically and meticulously constructing their own sense of personal righteousness by the rules that they kept. In front of the crowds of people, Jesus says, none of you are righteous. None of you are keeping the law. You don't even get it. And the interesting thing is the last time Jesus was in town in chapter 5, you see it there in your bulletin under the second point, none of you keeps it. He said this to them, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. I'm not your accuser. I'm not the one who's going to say this on that day. He says, what does he say? There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. The law itself is going to judge you. 
Right? The object of your hope and your salvation in the law is going to be that which actually on the last day judges you because you didn't actually keep it. It condemns you. Now, we need to understand when Jesus says this, he is making a statement that's not only true about them, but this is true of every human being. Right? Jesus is making a statement that isn't just about these, these men's particular failure. He is saying this is all... He says, when he says no one keeps it, it means no one keeps it. There is no human being on the face of the planet that keeps the law. In fact, that, that fact that no one can keep it, that no one can do it, hard and try as you might, is the gateway into the gospel. It's the first thing that we must recognize before we can enter into the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's trying to say and to do is we have to come to this understanding that no one can do it. It's there in your bulletin, Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And Paul labors in Romans 1 to 3 to show that Jews and Gentiles, you know, that the, that the nation of Israel and every nation, that every human being falls short of the glory of God, that this is a human problem. James Boyce, one commentator or pastor, said the fundamental spiritual error of the human heart is to think that a person can please God by his own efforts. It's a fundamental error of the human heart. And that's where the Pharisees had landed. That's where the Jewish leadership had landed, in thinking that they could please God by their own natural efforts. If I just make a list and I keep the list, then their eyes are always on themselves. In case you were dozing. But no one is ever saved by keeping the rules. And you need to understand, though, for some people, you know, I don't, that may sound bad, but you need to understand that's good news. No one is ever saved by keeping the rules. And if we ever come under that delusion, it is like the rat treadmill that we live on, trying to be good enough to please God, trying to do it all, trying. And, and when he says no one keeps the law and, 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 it, and no one can do it, this is good news. It's not possible. Because if it were possible, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Right? What, what's the point then of Jesus and his life and his death? Paul says it there, it's in your bulletin, Galatians chapter 3, if the, if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have indeed come by the law. If, but it can, right? And he says, but the scripture, that is where the law is given to us, right? The scripture, the law imprisons everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe The law, the list of rules, is meant to make us desperate. It's meant to to reveal us to ourselves. That when we set out to keep the law and the rules, what we will discover is how impossible it is in my own inability to do it, no matter how hard I try. Right? I think this is what Paul is experiencing, once again, Romans 7, there in your bulletin, when Paul says at the end of Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. But he says, I see in my members, it is in my body and in my life, another law, waging war against the law of my mind, my wanting to do it, 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Right? I want to do the law of God, but I find sin in my life. And what does he say at the end? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? Right? The law was meant to produce that cry. If the law, if God's law doesn't produce that cry in your heart, you need to go back to the law and try it again with a little more honesty. Because when you, when you come to the law, you love the law of God in your heart and you go to live it, you will find yourself in the place of who will deliver me? Who's going to deliver me from my inability to do all that God desires from me? The law was meant to create a hunger and a thirst for someone to deliver us from its crushing weight, from our own inability to please God by getting it all right. Try, try, try as we might, right? Instead of thirsting, these guys, instead of coming to the place, I I find that I can't do it. Who will deliver me from all this? These guys, what they do, instead of thirsting for deliverance, they twist the law. They externalize it. See, if if you don't look at your own heart too closely, and you externalize the law in a set of rules. Well, I got rules. I can be a rule keeper. Especially if you give me the right list. I can pull off a small list of rules. So they externalize it. They, they dumb it down. And they ignore the out-of-control sin that's in their hearts. And they think, as long as I keep my list, I'm fine. But they hate Jesus because when they dumb it down and they convince themselves it's doable, right? Which is what they've done. Instead of coming to the place of who will deliver me. They, they dumb it down and externalize it, and they tell themselves, this is doable. And then they begin to have this sense of righteousness in doing their list of rules. God must be really pleased with me. And so they call themselves righteous. But Jesus comes along and says things like this. He says, you guys, you guys are like a dirty cup. And what you do is you clean the outside of the cup, and you make it all shiny and nice, he says, but the inside of the cup is filthy. Or he says, you guys, you guys are like a whitewashed tomb, a grave. That somebody's come along and painted the outside of it with a nice little white, shiny exterior. He says, but inside, you guys are full of decay and dead men's bones. You are not righteous. And down at the core of your core, you are full of decay and death, and you don't get it. My friends, we, we struggle with the same temptation. We tend to dumb it down and whitewash and externalize the outside and play down and ignore the brokenness, the out-of-control sin that is inside. And if we can just have some rules that we keep, we can feel good about ourselves. And so a lot of Christianity does become about rules. Before I jump into Jesus' solution to all of this, let me just show that what he does in the last part of this, in verses 22 to 23, he gives them an example of the way that they're playing games with the law. 
and I want to make short work of it, but he says, you know, you guys, I did one deed, verse 21, I did one deed, and you guys all marvel at it. And, and what he means there, I think, is you guys got all worked up about it. I don't think they were impressed by it. I think they were all worked up about it. And you say, well, what deed is he talking about? What work is he talking about there? And we see it in verse 23. Right? Jesus says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you mad at me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Jesus healed a lame man. And it made him really angry. And it was the last time he was in town. You have to go back to chapter 5, the first 18 verses. It's a story of Jesus healing a lame man on the Sabbath. And it's the beginning of his bumping head to head with the leadership. Because we're told in chapter 5, verse 16, that this is when they begin persecuting him. In verse 18, it's when they want to kill him. And this is the deal. Jesus heals a crippled man. It's an act, it is is an act of power, a miraculous act, such that all by itself, what he did on that Sabbath day should have authenticated everything that has come out of his mouth. Right? It, it should have revealed him to them as the hand of God and the Messiah. He told a lame man to get up, take his mat, and walk. A man who was born crippled. Then an impossibility of restoring to wholeness a body that has been crippled its entire life. This work should have authenticated every word that came out of his mouth. They should have fallen on their knees. And said, tell us the truth. But they entirely missed the point. They strain gnats and swallow the camel. Right? They strain gnats. They're mad at him because he, he healed this guy on the Sabbath. And they can't get away from it, right? And Jesus says that is rank hypocrisy. That's what 22 to 23 is. You know, the whole thing that, that is there. He says, you guys will will perform circumcision on the Sabbath. And this is because you've got two things in, in the law of, law of Moses. You've got the Sabbath law, that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, but you've also got the law of circumcision. On the eighth day after the birth of a male child, you've got to get him circumcised. And depending on how, where your son was born, you know, if he's born on the right day, the eighth day is going to fall on the Sabbath. And so they're going to fulfill the law of circumcision by breaking the law of Sabbath. Right? In other words, they're going to make an allowance for this act, this, this act of ceremonial cleansing on a Hebrew child. They're going to make an allowance for that to take place on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you guys, seriously? You will make an allowance. You'll break the law of the Sabbath in order to make an allowance to keep the law of circumcision to fulfill the ceremonial cleansing of one part of the body. I healed his entire body. And caused him to, to stand and give glory and praise to God on the Sabbath. Which is a much greater work of cleansing and mercy than yours. And you can make no allowance for it. The rank hypocrisy of the way you guys play games with the law to make yourselves feel good about yourselves. So here's the situation. You've got these people who love the law. But they're so deluded that they don't realize that in loving the law, they've lost sight of God. And that in loving this law, they're also so deluded they don't realize that the law that they love condemns them. 
and will be their judge on the last day. And so, but in the name of this law that they love, they want to kill Jesus because of a supposed infraction of their law. A law that they themselves don't keep. And the irony is that they're out to kill the guy who gave them the law. One greater than Moses. One who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they're out to kill the guy who gave them the law. And not only that, they're out to kill not only the guy who gave them the law, but the only one who can save them from the condemnation they're under because of their inability to keep it. the, The irony is so powerful. They want to kill the only one who can save them from this law. And they will use it to kill him. And so Jesus ends this feast week in verse 37 to 39. He has this interchange. You see in the intervening verses that it goes on. They're out to get him and the plot thickens. And and on the very last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stands and he cries out and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink because whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart are going to flow rivers of living water. Right, Jesus with this dramatic invitation on the last day of the feast, it would be an invitation that sounds familiar. Right? Jesus pulls from the Old Testament. It's there in your bulletin under the last point. Isaiah 41. God says, When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, they're thirsty, I, Yahweh, will answer them. And I, Yahweh, will open rivers on the bare heights, right? And fountains in the midst of the valley. I will make wildernesses a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I, Yahweh, when my people thirst, when they understand their poverty and they thirst, then the Lord Himself, He says, will cause rivers to flow for life, right? It's Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. This is the Father. This is God. Invitation to His people. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's free. Incline your ear. Come to me and hear so that your soul might live. Jesus says the rivers will flow from your heart that your soul might live. You know, there's this, be- it's this beautiful imagery. Thirst is this picture of salvation for dry and parched souls in this, this parched land that is a picture of our inner lives. The inner lives of these very men who, who are outwardly whitewashed but inwardly full of death and decay and need, desperate need. And he promises to, to go in there And save them. Right, Jesus stands and he cries. Right, the rabbis, the teachers are the ones who usually stood in the temple, and particularly in feasts, they would stand in the midst of the people and they would teach. And so Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowd. He takes the floor. 
takes the place of the rabbi, he takes the place of the teacher, and he cries out to the crowd, takes, takes over and he delivers his message. If anyone thirsts, you've read the scriptures, if anyone thirsts, after all the disputing, all of your wrangling over the law and your rules and all of your stuff and your righteousness and your rank hypocrisy, if anyone out there thirsts, when it's all said and done, if anyone out there is thirsty for the presence of God in your life, then come to me and drink. Jesus stands in the place of God and He promises to be a spring of grace and salvation to the thirsty soul who would do nothing more. You don't have to fulfill any rules. You don't have to make a list of 1 to 10, whether it's carved in stone or your silly other list that you've made along it. You don't have to do it. And He says, if you want this spring, you don't have to fulfill some list. He says, you come to Me and drink. And he says, he makes it clear, this drinking is faith, right? Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, right? So to come and to drink is this image of faith. And this living waters is is an image of salvation and deliverance. What? From the very condemnation of the law that these guys have been so fixated on. Come and drink and receive all of the benefits. Here's the gospel. Because you drink of Christ, and he says, the rivers of life will flow. So that when you drink of him by faith, when you believe in him, he says, all of the benefits of the cross, where the penalty of our sins has been paid, where our failure to do the lists, where our failure to fulfill all that God demands, where that weight of guilt is lifted and the penalty of our sins is paid. And he says, and it's free, come, drink freely. Come, believe. It's Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're out from under the demands of the law. Now he makes clear in verse 39, at least for me it seems clear, that it's even more than this, if that isn't enough. I mean, to these guys, if you, if you recognize and are the thirsty ones, that's enough. But Jesus, it seems to me it's more than this because in 39, John explains and he says that Jesus is talking about the Spirit whom those who would believe in Him were to receive. And the fullness of that Spirit has not yet been poured out because Jesus has not yet been glorified. And so John points ahead to Pentecost. right? John points ahead and says, not only is there this legal transaction... of of your guilt being paid for and and the weight lifted, but all the fullness of the life in the Spirit and all the benefits that the New Testament enumerates flowing out of the new birth. The abundant, Spirit-filled life. It's more than the cross, it's the resurrection. The Spirit of God poured out in the lives of His people. He's not offering a a sip of salvation. He says, I'm going to create a river. I'm going to create a Jordan flowing through the center of your being. 
out of which the abundance of life comes. You know, next week I want to spend some time, I want to return to this invitation and consider more about what the New Testament tells us is involved in this life of the Spirit. So that's next week. But today, as you go, I just want to, I want us to encounter this invitation because I believe that the invitation is not exhausted when Jesus gave it. It's not exhausted when you come to Him for salvation on that day that you come. But I believe that the invitation is today. I think he is saying to us this morning, if any one of you is thirsty, come. Come and drink. And I can restore life. I can cause the rivers to flow. It can bring you back from the parched, dry place that you've been living. However you got there, whatever it is, He says, come. Paul in Ephesians 5 commands believers to be filled with the Spirit. And it's in such a way that he is saying, be filled and keep on being filled with the Spirit. And I tie that to Jesus' words here. I hear that to say, keep drinking. Keep coming and drinking. We want the fullness and and to be filled with the Spirit. He says, keep coming. Keep drinking. Keep coming. Keep the waters flowing. Right? As the branch abides in the vine and the, the life of the sap of the vine flows into the branch, he says, cling to me and drink. This morning, do you have the taste of living water on your lips? Do you know his presence? Do you know the flowing fullness of a spiritual life that loves and pursues holiness, that delights in His worship, that walks with Him day by day, that knows His presence, that knows His love, knows His grace and His mercy, who's growing in the knowledge of Christ and of the fullness of grace. Is the river flowing or has something got it hindered? Because the Scripture also tells us, do not quench the Spirit. My own experience is that I do that often. I quench the Spirit. I quench it by what I do, and I quench it by what I don't do. And again and again, we, we hear this invitation, and my friends, it comes to us in grace every day, right? He, every day, He invites us to begin again. Every day, He stands in our midst, and He says, is anyone thirsty? Have you had enough of the garbage that you got sunken into? Come, come and drink. May our gracious God create within us hearts that are indeed thirsty for his living presence. Pray with me. Father, sometimes we confess that our eyes are looking down. We are fixed on more on what we are doing and what we are able to do and we're fixed either on rules or we are just plain distracted and out there somewhere. But God, would you have mercy on us this morning and create in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Would you create in us a thirst for deliverance. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who sets us free from the law of sin and death. 
Oh, Spirit of God, come. Fill us. Flow within us. Create life where there is only death. Soak the parched ground like the spring rains watering the earth. Break up the soil. Bring forth new growth, passion, and love for you. You can do it. We ask for it and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.